Welcome to Acquisition Talk, a podcast on the management, technology, and the political economy of weapon systems acquisition. I'm your host, Eric Lofgren. You can find this podcast and more information, including links, commentary, and articles on acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks for listening. Welcome, everyone. Uh, Good afternoon. My name is Jerry McGinn. I'm the executive director of the Center for Government Contracting here in the School of Business at George Mason University. And we're really excited to welcome you to today's event um, webinar on research and development um, productivity, measuring trends in in R&D for the government contracting community. This is a very fascinating topic, and we have a great panel lined up to to discuss, but I believe we want to introduce the center and the topic. So the center, we've stood up in a couple of years ago, and our focus is on being a nexus for government, industry, and academia to collaborate and address business policy regulatory challenges facing you in, in the government contracting community. We do this through events like this, research and the like, and research is a, and development is a topic that I worked on in my most recent government job. And it's a really difficult topic to, uh, to address in the aerospace and defense community because there are different types of R&D, government-funded research development, internal research and development, which is partially reimbursed, and as well as internal research and development. And so we're very excited to have Anne-Marie Notch, who's a professor at the Owen School of Business at WashU in uh, St. Louis. She's also affiliated faculty member in the center. And she's going to talk about the, a measure that she's uh, created to, uh, to measure productivity of R&D. And then we have a government, former government perspective in, in Kevin Fahey, former Assistant Secretary of Defense for Acquisition, as well as Byron Callen, who's one of the premier analysts for the AD market. And this is an issue which I've dealt with in government, and we were trying to measure um, the impact of gov- research development for government contractors. And it was really hard to get at, And but hopefully Anne-Marie and Kevin and Byron will be able to help us show the way. And But I'm really pleased to welcome Stephanie Halcrow, who's our new senior fellow in the center. She comes to us from the House Armed Services Committee, where she was the key acquisition staff member, professional staff member for the chairman and then ranking member, Mac Thornberry, did a lot of work in acquisition reform. And so she's going to moderate the discussion. So I'm going to throw it over to her and we look forward to your comments and questions throughout. So Stephanie, over to you. Thanks, Jerry. Sure appreciate the introduction. We have three panelists, as Jerry introduced, and we will give each panelist a few minutes to talk about their perspectives on this topic, and then we will move into some discussion and Q&A from the attendees. So at this point, I'd like to invite Anne-Marie Knott to begin and talk about the interesting research that she has done on how industry can figure out their return on investment for research and development. Amory, over to you. Terrific, Stephanie. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. This is my natural home. I began my career working at Hughes Aircraft Company doing missile guidance systems. 
And one of the things that occurred during that career was that we were acquired by General Motors and they started changing the way that we were organizing our R&D and evaluating R&D. And I said, these changes are going to be catastrophic and they're going to permanently degrade our R&D capability. But the problem at the time was I couldn't get anybody else alarmed because there was no good measure of R&D capability. So that became my holy grail. So it turns out I was right to be alarmed. What was happening at Hughes was happening throughout the entire economy. Historically, innovation has been the driver of economic growth. The best estimate is that it accounts for about 63% of growth. And historically, that's been true. To help you understand that, what I want to do is I want to plot companies' R&D spending. So this is their R&D intensity, so R&D divided by sales. And now what I'm going to do is I'm going to plot on top of it GDP growth. And what you can see is that GDP growth tracks R&D spending with a lag through the rise, through the fall, but it never picks back up again in the 80s when R&D spending picks back up. So the broken engine is not a spending problem. What is the problem is to help us understand that, what I want to do is I'm going to plot GDP growth again, and I'm now going to plot on top of that companies' R&D productivity using uh, the measure that I developed called RQ. And what you can see then is that GDP growth basically tracks R&D productivity. So that broken engine is a productivity problem. And what I want to do is I want to get companies to restore their RQs so that we can revive economic growth. But to help you understand the measures, as I said, the name is RQ. It's uh, short for research quotient. It's intendedly the equivalent of individuals' IQ. So companies' equivalent of an individuals' IQ, how smart they are. But but that's the intuition. What's nice about the measure is that it's actually rooted in economic theories. So it's based on Paul Romer's theory linking R&D to growth, for which he won the Nobel Prize in 2018. And I'm just going to take you back for some freshman economics. So what we have on the uh, right-hand side is the production function. This is the foundation of his theory. And if you remember, the production function links companies' inputs to their outputs. So the typical inputs that we look at are capital and labor, and these outputs would be like a 100 widgets, 200 widgets, 300 widgets. And what the tool helps us do is understand where along any of those curves we want to be. So for example, if you're on the inner curve, you might have use a lot of capital and very little labor, point B, or roughly equal amounts, point D. Romer's insight is that we're missing a key input, knowledge. And the role of knowledge is to make companies more productive with any given level of capital and labor. So you can see that if you were using the same level of capital and labor that you would have been at point C, originally you would have been producing 200 widgets. Now you would be producing 250 widgets. Where does knowledge come from? Not surprisingly, it comes from R&D. And in particular, the amount of new knowledge that you get is a function of how much you're spending, how much knowledge you had to begin with. So for example, you can't do calculus until you understand algebra. And the delta term, which is the productivity of your R&D in, in generating new knowledge. So what we can do is we can take the original production function and substitute for A with the actual R&D that produces it. And when you do that, it has its own exponent, just as all the other inputs do. Those exponents are called elasticities. So RQ is actually this gamma term, the exponent on R&D. It has a technical name. It's the firm-specific output elasticity of R&D. That's meaningful mainly to economists. But what's nice is it's got a practical translation. It's the percentage increase in output that you expect to get from a 1% increase in R&D. Now, what's really nice about having a theoretical foundation is that it supports prediction about the impact of R&D. So for example, if you know your 
RQ, you can predict the revenues. There, that's just plugging the R&D into the production function. Prof, you will know your profits as well. That's just the gross margin times the revenue subtracting off the R&D. Optimal R&D looks like a mess. It's the partial of profits with respect to R&D. Market value is the net present value of profits and growth is just the R&D term in the revenue equation. Now, what I've done is as a scientist or engineer, I tested all of these predictions and using US data, 47 years of all US traded firms and they hold and there's no other measure for which they do hold. So my goal is, as I said, to get companies to restore their RQ so we can revive growth. And what I'm learning is that it's really important to bring together all the constituencies, which is why I'm so excited about today's meeting. It does involve investors. It does involve government. It does involve companies. And you know, I represent academia, so I think I'm a little bit less important, but um, really excited to hear what the other panelists have today to say today. Anne-Marie, thanks so much for those comments. At this time, I will move to Brian Callen, who, as Jerry introduced, is a defense sector analyst, and he has some insights on what the current trends are in industry investment in R&D. Byron? Thank you very much for inviting me to share my thoughts today on this event. I really wanted to offer maybe five observations and some questions around this whole question of, of R&D, really drilling down on the defense sector. And again, this is more from a public company standpoint, because that's where the data is that I can analyze, I think, as Anne-Marie mentioned in, in her studies, too. I think the first question for me, it's a bit of a measurement issue. If you look at the data that's actually disclosed by companies in their SEC filings, their, their 10K annual filings, they'll reference company-funded R&D, <clears throat> but they obviously are getting much more R&D in their government contracts. And IRAD isn't broken out from company-funded efforts. And in some instances, if you look at past data, companies will include bid and proposal expense in that R&D function as well, too. What are you really talking about when you get into the core of R&D, if it's invention or innovation? So there's a measurement issue that I think is, is interesting to grapple with a bit here. The other part is obviously there are other ways to conduct research and development. You see a lot of venture investing recently. Companies like Lockheed Martin and Northrop Grumman have set up venture investment arms. Boeing has been doing this as well. Strategic partnering, obviously merger and acquisitions, small kind of bolt-on acquisitions that companies pursue for a specific technology can be another way to bring in R&D. And I think Anne-Marie probably has some thoughts about how effective or ineffective some of those other strategies may be. But I grapple with this a little bit because I think more holistically, what are companies investing in their future? It's a little more complicated from a measurement issue, just drilling down on the little part of the market that I focus on. In looking back at trends, now having said all that, this is the second point. The, the large companies have really been remarkably consistent in the percent of sales that they've spent on research and development. Again, the line item that gets disclosed in their 10K filings. I've got data back to 1960 on Lockheed, recognizing that Lockheed is a very different company in 1960, 70, or 80 than it is today under Lockheed Martin. But they spent around 2% of, of sales on research and development annually. It was a little bit higher in the mid-1980s, and I should point out this is data that excludes the development money that they spent on the L-1011 Civil Airliner Program. You can back that out, but it's been fairly consistent. Northrop or Northrop Grumman, which is the other company I've got data going back to 1970, their average was around 2.5%. That excludes the F-20 Tiger Shark Program that was 
the self-funded effort that they undertook that really blew the doors. I think they were up to 12% one year in R&D as a percent of sales, but it's been fairly consistent for the contractors. And looking at data over the last couple of years, there's been a modest uptick for maybe two to two and a half percent, but no one's really put the uh, pedal to the metal in terms of a major step up in research and development as a percent of sales. What I observed, you, you typically see smaller companies spend higher amounts of R&D as a percent of sales in the defense sector. This was There's a neat little chart in the 2020 Defense Industrial Base Report that went to Congress that showed this. If I look, for example, at Harris prior to the merger with L3, they were consistently spending about 5% or more of sales on research and development. Smaller companies, Aerovironment, last eight years, they've been ranging between 10 to 18%. Mercury Systems, another smaller company, 11 to 14%. Maybe that's another way to think about this. And I don't think that's unique to the defense sector is a lot of the stepped up investment is really taking place at these second and third tier companies. Thinking about kind of competitiveness and the distinction that research and development could make in the relative positioning of some of these contractors, again, thinking about time series of data, there's just not much out there that I can really make good comparisons to. I've tried to get uh, use aircraft R&D spending, but it was a private company. And even in the General Motors days, I don't think when there was a separate tracking stock, there was a breakout for what use was spending on research and development. But the, the whole composition of the industry has changed too. With the consolidation you saw in the 1990s, the fact that companies like IBM and Texas Instruments got out in effect of the defense business by selling off their defense units. So to really frame this as an aggregate look at the sector over time, there are just limitations on the data. Having said that, you know, what I observe, there are instances or the really more anecdotes where companies had stepped up research and development to either reposition the company or were instances where you could show that they had a spurt or growth spurt compared to their competitors. And in no particular order, the ones that come to my mind are uh, Martin Marietta in 1984, 1985. Norm Augustine made a, a point at the time to basically reposition the company from an aeronautics company to more an electronics-based company. There was a chart that I have somewhere on my computer that showed the uh, reaction, the initial reaction to the stock price when he announced that. I think it was down 15%. But ultimately, he did succeed in repositioning Martin Marietta from this kind of core aeronautics business into a more uh, diversified electronics uh, business. And maybe the, the end of the Cold War kind of messes the data up because you really can't see how that subsequent growth path would have played out relative to some of the other competitors. More recent examples, Raytheon had talked about their investment in gallium nitride and how that had actually helped them win a number of radar contracts. You could see a little bit of a growth spurt relative to some of their peers. Another example had been Harris and the Falcon Radio. They really stepped in very nicely when the Jitters program just wasn't delivering a, a capability that was needed in Afghanistan and Iraq. They paid for their, their money and had built a, a very good, solid business from that research and development investment that showed growth higher than certainly their peers were showing. Another two points I want to conclude on, I think the key question here is, so what can change in the 2020s? Are we really going to see stepped up research and development expenditures 
Right now, I'm not seeing it, at least in the data that's come out in 2020 for the large defense contractors. We're about to launch into another earnings season. Lockheed Martin had their conference call earlier this week. They really didn't talk about anything about stepped-up R&D. My sense is they probably are going to have to do that. They've got more competitive pressure from the low side with a whole constellation of smaller kind of venture-backed firms maybe looking to grow in defense. But also the other interesting phenomenon is when you see companies like General Motors or Amazon or Microsoft also starting to look at little entrance points on the defense market, that too is something that I think they're going to have to be more attentive to. And so this dominant focus on free cash flow generation and operating margins that you see reiterated in these earnings conference calls, that's sustainable to a point. And then you're really going to have to deal with these new competitive forces in the market. I guess the following, this is more a question than a conclusion. I don't know what the right level is for DOD and for defense contractors to spend on R&D. My sense is that it's more, but I can't give you, is it, should they be spending 3% or 4% of R&D? I think that really has just got to be taken on a case-by-case basis. And you also have to be able to make the business case to shareholders that those investments will ultimately lead to new businesses that will generate profits for these contractors. So Stephanie, that's, those are my comments. Thanks, Byron. Always great to end with a question. And we will start with that question when all the panel members start our discussion. But before I get to that, I'd like to introduce my good friend, Kevin Fahey. We spent the last few years working very closely together. It's great to see you again. And I, I look forward to hearing your Thoughts on how public policy can influence and encourage investments in research and development. Kevin, over to you. Yeah, thanks, Stephanie. So let me, you know, I'll have a little different perspective, obviously. I mean, I'm not nearly as smart as the previous two. At one time in my career, I was the tech director of an R&D center. In Rice. And in some instances, I had the experience of where do I convince the Army to, in, to invest in R&D in my my R&D center and the way I measured it there was various things, right? Where was my customers willing to spend? But the other things I did measure, which I thought was interested in not talking, I often measured the skills of the employees I had. I basically ran a munitions and armament center. And so I needed, I knew I needed to have so many people to do all the things I needed to do. So sometimes I would invest in R&D to make sure I did enough stuff to have the the right people for the right jobs into the future. And then most of my career was in acquisition, right? So I was a deputy PM. I was a deputy uh, program executive officer. I was a, a program executive officer twice. And as you can imagine, in that role, my focus was more on the where do I invest on technology that's going to transition, right, to a program that I'm going to execute. So my metrics as a government employee and when I was working my industry partners was less focused on the, the basic research and the things that may mature 10 years from now and more as two years from now, I'm going to start a program. What's the probability that the R&D I'm going to support? Because uh, a lot of times they would look to us to where should they, they invest to transition to a real program for a capability from that perspective. So that was more of a, our measure at that was in, in the Army and the Department of Defense. That is one of their major metrics they use is transition to a real program. 
And then uh, Stephanie, uh, so I left the government and I worked for Cyprus International for a couple of years. And then they tucked me into coming back for a bunch of reasons. I agreed to come back really because I do believe it's critical. We all, I would tell you, one of the main reasons I did come back is I believe we all have to figure out how to do a better and quicker job on how do we transition technology to programs to the field quicker. So it's really about the maturation. And it all starts with technology. And so I was working hand in hand with the research and development folks. As you, as anyone that works at the Department of Defense, we had 10 priority areas. I will tell you, you could argue about the, the split of acquisition technology and logistics into two organizations. But I think where it's very positive is we had a real focus on technology development. And I will tell you, the big part of it was when I work on something like hypersonics, it's not just the technology, is what is the concept of operation on how I'm going to actually use it. I will tell you, it's more of something I was working that I still struggle with was, right, how do we incentivize industry? From my experience, we, in a, it's a rare occasion, we talk about innovation. I've yet to see very many requests for proposals have a good way that we have an incentive on how you do innovation. And I'll give you a good example. We are all believers that we need to transition into this environment of digital engineering. And so how do you incentivize that? How do you measure that? Because we met as a Department of Defense with a lot of industry. On why did you do the transition? Because we have a lot of commercial industry that has already transitioned to do in digital engineering and all those kind of things. And it's an investment in tools and and different people and training and all that stuff. So that to me is an R&D investment that we on the government side, we're trying to figure out how do we incentivize industry uh, to make that a change. The other thing I would say being, then I just started my new job, which was really part of my old job back with Cypress. And one of the things that I have seen that I have always believed in, and I know Stephanie and I have had this conversation, is the one thing that government really needs to continue to improve. You see the recent government trend is almost an expectation that industry will invest R&D so they'll mature the technology so that when we do prototyping, it's ready to quickly transition to the field. The one thing the government has got to continue to improve on is the transparency on what do they need, the clear understanding to industry on what are the capability needs and what is the return on investment, because to a large extent, industry invests where they believe that they're going to get a return on investment. And so part of the struggle and continuous struggle is, one is, how do we get better transparency that they have a, they as a good as understanding as the government on what the needs are, and then how do we incentivize that? The other thing I'd point out, which was talked about, is you do see differences in different parts of the industry, right? There's part of the depart defense industrial base that really is 95% delivering to the Department of Defense, where almost all the funding for R&D in one way or another comes from the Department of Defense. But then you see companies, and I'll give you a great example, the commercial uh, aviation, is we see a lot of benefit to the Department of Defense because the aviation corporation, to a large extent, spends their R&D to make a commercial airline or a commercial engine more producible and effective and efficient. We saw that a big impact on the Department of Defense when the last year or so with COVID, where there wasn't 
a lot of cash flow from commercial air. So that if there's not a lot of cash flow, there's not a lot of available R&D dollars, that there was more of an expectation that, and we did, through, and Steffi knows this, through you know Defense Production Act, in some instances, we're funding some of the R&D investments to continue to get to the next step. But the one thing that I continue to work, and I would have continued to work if I was still there, is how do we incentivize making the transition to things like digital engineering, which is an R&D investment? And then how are we, how can we be more transparent? So we're Industry is not guessing where to do R&D, knowing that our, the government's expectation has been an expectation that industry invests more R&D, and they will if they knew the probability of return investment, right? Because as you know, that's really their measurement is if I'm going to invest, I better get a return. So that's what I have. Thanks, Kevin. Appreciate those comments. Byron, you ended your comments by asking, are we investing enough in R&D? But in listening to Anne-Marie, she said it's all about productivity. Kevin says it's all about national security. Anne-Marie, can you talk to how do we maximize productivity in investments in research and development? If you have the RQ measure, you can actually compute what the optimal R&D is. So spending the right amount is a different question than becoming more productive. What's happened over time as companies' R&D productivity has declined, they've kept the same rules of thumb for how to invest, so the same percentage of sales. And what that means now is that the bulk of companies are overspending on R&D. So are you saying that they should invest that money in other places or? Give it back to shareholders, yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, because what's happened? What, uh, so yes, let me be more helpful with that. So when I mean the optimal investment, what I mean is that any dollar beyond that point, any dollar of R and D beyond that point generates less than a dollar of profits. And so you don't want to be spending out there. You want you can be if you've got other things that are more productive, you could invest your money there. If not, you should be sending the money back to shareholders. And that's one of the principal reasons why we saw this. We talked about this yesterday. We, we saw stock buybacks rather than an enhanced investment in response to the Jobs Act. Byron, what is your thoughts on how shareholders view investments in R&D? And is there a difference between shareholders of commercial companies and defense-only companies? I th I'm going to answer it a couple of different ways. There, I think there's a perception that, boy, shareholders just want to see companies use cash to buy back stock or pay dividends. So the shareholders are going to get the, the largesse of cash flow, free cash flow. I tell the anecdote, a couple of years ago, there was an investor meeting that Mercury Systems held in New York. And one of the shareholders at the time got up to the back of the room and said, you guys are not spending enough money on R&D given the opportunity set. I'm willing to take the earnings hit that you'll see in next year or two if you can create a clear runway to out your growth. And I, I just thought that was an interesting anecdote. I, I don't know if that's going to happen with Lockheed Martin or Northrop Grumman, not to pick on those two, but I'll come back to, and I do think when you see instances, let's take the launch market, for example, where ULA was probably thought of a U.S. launch as a backwater. Not much is going to happen there. Boeing and Lockheed Martin, fine. You've got the United Launch Alliance, fairly stable profits. Elon Musk comes along with SpaceX and basically destroys the profitability of that particular entity. You can walk that right through the uh, the disclosure that, that Lockheed Martin has made of their equity. So I think there's a competitive part to this that, as I said, I don't know. I don't know. I haven't <clears throat> been able to do a 
an RQ for some of these companies. My, my sense is, um, and I don't know if Anne-Marie has some thoughts on this. Yeah, if you look at a lot of technology companies, they're probably spending 25, 30% of sales on research and development. But recognizing it's a very different business model in defense, I'm not sure if 2% at the reported level is a, is a right number. And the other part to pick up on Kevin's theme, digital engineering is going to be a game changer, always a game changer. I think the other part that there could be some really rude awakenings if contracts are, if incumbent positions are lost in major weapon systems because someone else spent money on, on digital engineering that your company didn't. And, and that'll ricochet back through how shareholders look at some of this stuff too. Emery, did you have any thoughts on Byron's comments? I looked at this yesterday because I knew that uh, Byron's going to ask us. So it turns out that about 50% of the number of firms that are overspending is increasing in defense, but not at the same rate that it's increasing in the other sectors. And it turns out that I think it's about 50% of firms are overspending and 50% of underspending. So on average, they're getting it about right. Very cool. Is there anything the government can do to increase the bang for the buck in research and development investments? Oh, sure. I would, I would love companies to increase their RQ for that benefits their shareholders, that benefits the government, the government bang for their buck, as I said. And to me, the two obvious things the government could do would be one, when they're, they're letting R&D contracts use RQ as one of the measures of technical merit. And the other is to consider in the IRAD reimbursement program, companies RQs as a way, a way for establishing the percentage of reimbursement. Because once company knows that when, once companies know that somebody is using RQ as a means to reward them, then that will give them more of an incentive to improve their RQ. Kevin, would you like to jump in from a government perspective on that? Yeah, a, a few things. I agree, Anne-Marie, and I know the other day we talked about that. The only thing I'm unclear of is the math differences, right? So there's significant math differences between commercial and government. The one being, and Stephanie knows this, in a lot of instances, we invest in the R&D and then we, we reimburse those allowable costs in the independent R&D. And oh, by the way, is if you're competing for a government contract, we get full disclosure of your cost and pricing and we almost cap the most profit you'll make is 15%. None of that math happens in commercial market, right? As they invest a lot in R&D because when, if they let the commercial market drive what they're going to get for their product, and as you like the iPhone, I guarantee you is more than 15% profit. So I agree with what Anne-Marie said. There should be better ways to have metrics to do that. I would argue we have to work through how the math is different from a Department of Defense perspective. I would, you know, I would think Anne-Marie would agree with that. I do agree with that. <laughs> Let me uh, turn to some of the questions that our attendees have asked. We have one question, just very simply, how does a company raise its productivity? Thanks, John Bailey, for that question. How does a company raise its productivity? So it's, there's a lot that's company specific, right? The easiest thing to do when I work with companies, what I will tell them to do is at least benchmark where it's been and where it is now and see if you were doing something differently in the past. 
the broad things that make companies more productive across all sectors. One, the most important finding I have. So let me step back. I had an opportunity. I had a couple of National Science Foundation grants that allowed me to link companies' RQs to their R&D practices. And so I combined the two to try to understand what drives RQ. The most important finding I have is that the RQ of outsourced R&D is zero, meaning a dollar of R&D that you outsource is completely unproductive. And that's very controversial, and we can follow up on that if anybody has a question. But there's others too. But why don't I let other people jump in and ask other questions? Brian, do you have any thoughts on this? I know you've looked at different types of achieving R&D, whether it be partnerships or specific ventures. I don't have the, the data that Anne-Marie does, I think, anecdotally on a lot of this stuff. I, I just know there, there have been instances, a couple of acquisitions that Raytheon had made, for example, that had helped them significantly. So on the productivity question, I, I don't have a strong view on that. I think it probably does get back to people that was mentioned. How are you educating your people? What are you training them to do? I am intrigued on the, uh, the whole question about outsourced R&D. And again, because I just see the venture activity that's been going on. I don't know if that fits in that same area, Marie. I know Lockheed in their latest report just realized a $54 million gain. And you've seen a lot of, if outsourced is including kind of the venture activity, there's really a lot going on there. It's helped people like L3 position on unmanned autonomous naval vessels. I think anecdotally on this, and maybe there are always exceptions to big data sets. So Maybe that's what I'm seeing from my perch is there's a lot of that going on. And I think particularly as the commercial sector now is really driving a lot of research and development, it becomes more and more of an imperative for defense contractors to be able to tap into that. And it, it may go back to that earlier question or, or observation that you've had a, a real change in this industry over the past generation or two where a lot of the multi-sector companies aren't in defense anymore. So Texas Instruments, which used to have uh, a defense systems business, they now focus on commercial technology. To Kevin's point, Boeing and Textron, I think they are doing interesting things in digital engineering, and that frankly is going to help them. It's helped Boeing in the military aircraft market. I think it's going to be real interesting to see how it helps Textron in the far-on Flora programs the Army is pursuing going forward. So when I say outsourced R&D, what I mean is this is the money that the company pays for. It's R&D that the company funds, but pays another organization to do for it, to conduct for it on its behalf. So that would be just, I would just, that's distinguished from things like upfront venture activity and acquisitions. And in those cases, the preliminary evidence is that acquisitions are okay as long as they're small relative to the scale of the company, meaning that this is a nice marriage where the small company gets the benefit of the big company. And on the venture, and on the ventures, that's a great question. I don't know the answer to that yet, but the sense is that these Corporate venture funds are actually more productive than independent venture funds. Not everybody knows that. And that's because they've got in-depth expertise. Companies don't go in to CVCs for purposes of taking those ventures public. They do that to scan the environment and to see what they would want to pick up. And yeah, so you should evaluate them separately. But my guess is that companies that have CVCs and manage them effectively actually have higher RQ. Thanks for that addition. Kevin, I'd like to throw a question your way. There was a GAO report recently that criticized the defense industry investment in R&D and that it wasn't aligned to the strategic goals of the Department of Defense or vice versa. How can the Department of Defense better align 
the research and development that is an allowable cost for defense contractors be better aligned with the national security goals? You know, one of the things is I'm a believer that the behavior in a lot of instances you see of our industry in the defense is caused by our behavior, right? The, the actual defense people, the government people. If you think about it, what does the defense industrial base spend their money on is what they're incentivized to spend their money on. And sometimes it, it used to upset me because you would think that they would spend money in areas that are good for everybody. But for the most part, the reason you see, you think I, t I told you, for the most part, how do we incentivize digital engineering and those kind of things or innovation, right? We, the government, yet haven't figured out the good ways to say how, you know, it's all about in the government terms is Section L says, here's what you give us in your proposal. And Section M says, here's how we're going to evaluate it. We don't necessarily incentivize innovation. We usually are going for a product. Like DAPA does a good job of incentivizing R&D research. But you fly across the department in some instances, um, the reason that industry doesn't spend their money on it, because that's not what we incentivize them to spend their money on. It. We tend to incentivize them mostly to spend their money on winning the next project not necessarily quantum stuff because quantum stuff is 10 years away or whenever it is. It's not, how do, how do I win a program tomorrow? And that's, I would argue in a, in a lot of instances with the establishment at R&D, we are getting better at incentivizing R&D investments in the right areas. It was a big leap for the Department of Defense to identify 10 priority areas versus spend their money on everything. But a lot of it's because we have not, it's not industry's fault, in my opinion, in a lot of instances, it's not what we incentivize them to spend it on. Great. As a follow-up to this conversation, I'd like to bring in a question from our attendees. And the question from David Peterson is, what criteria or goals should emerging small to medium businesses focus on in their IRAD or allowable cost R&D program? to compete against large businesses. So again, what can small and medium businesses focus their R&D efforts on to better compete with large businesses? Anybody wanna take that? I'll jump in for the sake of jumping in. Things that the large companies aren't interested in. The opportunity for small companies. A lot of small companies start because there was an engineer inside a large company working on a project that they fell in love with. And the large company just said, well, that's below our market threshold. We're not going to go after that. Uh, and they go off and start a successful company that once they get a toehold can grow, can grow bigger. I think the flying under the radar scheme will work for a while. No, I would I agree. That's a, that, that's a very hard question, but it really is is finding out where the niche areas are that they, when you asked about productivity, I was going to add, right, it's really about the tools and the people. That's why I was a little surprised by outsourcing some stuff, because I've seen in some instances, if you need 10 people, but you only have seven of the right skills, you may outsource for those three other skills that you needed to make the team. In some instances, it's finding those... You find a lot of the cyber stuff, Stephanie, tends to be good R&D investments in a niche thing that a large business is not really interested in. You know what I mean? Thank you. Appreciate that. Again, we've got a lot of great questions from our attendees. I have another one here from Steve Grundman. Does the government subsidizing R&D promote or impede RQ 
Or would the productivity of defense R&D be better if it was financed only by private investors, provided profits of success were not capped at 15%, for example? Anne-Marie, do you want to start? I haven't thought about the 15% part, but on the, but on the reimbursement part, I think, that, I, I think that we need to do is draw a parallel to the commercial sector. The commercial sector gets its R&D reimbursed because it embeds, it amortizes the R&D costs into the uh, pricing of the, the products. And I, I, think the, I think the IRAD program is essentially trying to do, do the same thing for defense contractors when you know, their profits are capped. It would be an interesting issue to explore, I think, in greater depth. It, it really does go back to the incentives. I mentioned Harris earlier in the division where they developed the Falcon radio. They were selling that as a commercial item, and they were reporting 25% operating margin. And, and again, if you look at technology companies in general, they have much higher gross margins uh, than you'd see in a defense, a defense program. On the other hand, they also have the opportunity to go out of business in two or three years if they don't develop the next new replacement product, given the, the speed at which things are changing. So it's a trade-off. But yeah, I would think, and maybe this gets more to a profit policy question, but if you tailored profit policy to where do you want innovation and risk and reward that, that, that might be another tool to add here. Yeah, I would just add, this is Kevin, Stephanie, the typical government answer, it depends. So if there's a commercial potential application to it, if it's a unique thing like the ground-based strategic deterrent missile, I don't think you're going to get anybody to invest billions of dollars with the idea that, you know, 10 years, from, you know, five years from now, I will make a production decision based on that or, or the next generation fighter, you name it. But in some of our portfolios, I do believe that we got to learn better on how we let the commercial market drive what we do. Thanks. We have a question that talks about the increasing amount of knowledge that is being gained through R&D. And do we think that has any effect on productivity? So let me read the question for you. What do we think of the view that R&D productivity is naturally secularly decreasing? because the accumulation of knowledge is making further scientific advances more expensive. Amory, I, I have a paper on this because uh, that is a prevailing view that look, we've just, ideas are getting harder to find is the title of the paper that was published. And it's, they don't even test that. It's very frustrating for me. And it turns out we did test it and it's not correct. What is happening is, and the way that the kind of the clever test that we did was we said, okay, look, if it's truly the case that we've got this secular decline, what should happen is that it's not, the decline isn't happening just at the mean, it's happening across the entire distribution. And what we did was we took the maximum RQ company in each year and looked to see what was happening to that over time. And that was actually increasing. If we went to narrower definitions of in industry, we found that this maximum RQ was actually decreasing. So what's really cool about that is that it says that, that you do they get the secular decline, just like everybody believes. But what happens is when that uh, occurs within an industry, we've got enterprising firms who create new, new domains and that those continue to allow us to at least maintain, if not increase productivity. I just like to thank my, my very well-read colleague for posing that question, Jim Hasek. So <laughs> thanks. I knew somebody would be well-versed to speak on that. Byron, Kevin, did you have any other thoughts? And potentially, I know, Kevin, we discussed this a couple of days ago, and you mentioned it a little bit in your comments about 
the type of R&D that, that firms are doing, it's not all in quantum. Some of it's in process improvement, in incorporating robotics. And so is there, is there an effort to diversify R&D spending and does that affect productivity at all or improve the results for the department? Yes. And again, it all depends on where you sit and what you're trying to capture and what the baseline, as Anne-Marie and Byron mentioned, is what is the baseline you're going from? But in a lot of instances, I believe when you make it a real change into something different like digital engineering, you're going to have to make an investment in the tools in the people skills, right? What we found in most industry, when we went and found out how do we follow the commercial lead, they all had to change people skills, right? Because the people that were doing it the old way aren't the people that are going to do it the new way unless you train them to do it the, the new way. So I do believe, in, in, in Steph, I think another good example is which in, even internal to the government after you've seen it across the country is this whole idea about software factories, right? Software factories are a productivity thing where some of it is the how you set it up, the tools you set up, and the environment you give them. Because that's another thing that we've found in R&D, and Marianne and Byron might know, is that the environment you put a scientist in matters. So those are kinds of things that I do believe, in addition to spending money on what is the maturation of the specific technology, is what are the right skills, tools, and environment. I just add, I think there is a it's an engineering business at the end of the day. And there's a mission aspect to it that's unique, maybe compared to other commercial sectors. But this is a sector that still has to compete for talent. And I, I think having research development that might in theory be perceived as wasteful, iterations on prototypes, things like that, where you're still pushing ahead knowledge, it may not necessarily appreciated always in Congress, or it may make the papers every once in a while. But I think there's a, a goodness or a richness to pushing some of this stuff along that it, it continues to attract and challenge younger engineers. And I, I was always intrigued by Dr. Roper's idea of a digital century series of aircraft, where you really start doing those iterations that you're just missing when you do a, you know, once in a generation new combat aircraft. So just a thought there. Maybe as much as you try and measure some of these efficiencies on this. Maybe there's some inefficiencies that create efficiencies of their own. Thanks, Byron. I really appreciate all the panelists joining us today. And we've got so many great questions for the attendees. But I'd just like to wrap up as we get to the top of the hour and ask each panelist to provide some final comments with the thought that R&D is good for the bottom line. It's necessary for national security. What are your hopes to see in the upcoming president bud president's budget, in upcoming NDA legislation, and in, in industries move to increase, decrease, improve productivity in their R&D? Amory, I'll turn to you first. Uh, I love that question. One of the big uh, misnomers currently is that we have been underinvesting in research. So there is all this emphasis on providing more money to universities and providing uh, more money to startup firms. Large firms are the bulk of the innovation engine in the country. They spend 5.75 uh, times more on R&D in aggregate, and they're more productive with their R&D. And the big decline in the big decline in federal funding for R&D is in D. It's 
it's not the big decline, it is all of the decline is in D. And if we really want to drive, if we really want to drive growth from R&D, then we've got to rethink, we've got to move away from this idea of research as the preeminent uh, focus in China, who we're all afraid about, afraid of, do far more D relative to R than we do. Thanks, Emery. Byron? FY22 is going to be a, a stub year, right? It's really going to be more about FY23, Palm, and, and what plays out there. But I suppose for this year, my wish list, I would hope that the appropriators and the authorizers keep some of these development programs, not 6163, but the 6465 efforts funded and push them ahead. And I recognize there are always the threats to large procurement programs from new development efforts. And most representatives are going to look at the jobs in their district and these future programs don't carry that same resonance. But I'm, I'm hoping we pivot to where we want to be, not where we are today, that some of these development programs in unmanned autonomous naval ships on down the line are, are funded. I would also ask, or I would wish, that managements might talk a little bit more to their shareholders about what they're doing and how they're, what their narrative is and how they're trying to position and grow their companies and deflect some of the, what are we doing with cash flow questions to what are we doing to actually grow our business, improve productivity, back to the earlier question, align with DOD perspectives. I think that's, that may also kind of push shareholders a little bit more in the right direction too. Thanks, Byron. Kevin? Yeah, so just a few things I agree with that the previous two said. One is I would emphasize, Steph, you understand this, how important the STEM program is. In some instances, following what Byron said, is finding the right people to do the jobs is important. And so I would argue from the congressional perspective to continue to look at it and even expand it as we were looking at it before software development and the things that we know are the cyber, the things are the skills of the future that weren't necessarily the skills of the past. I ask everybody here is to continue to help each other and how do we incentivize the right investments and the right behavior when it comes to R&D. And then probably the, the last area, just because I spent a lot of time in it, is I do believe whether it be skills or technologies, cyber is a critical thing that we still need a lot of work on. That's what I'd say. Thanks, Kevin. I appreciate you uh, wrapping us up there. Thanks again to all of our panelists for joining us here at George Mason University School of Business Center for Government Contracting. Such an important discussion on research and development. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.